from Boca Raton, Florida, this is Behind the Beamer. On this episode, the rabbis are joined by Jeff Swartz, former CEO of Timberland. Jeff talks about his path to observance, shares amazing stories from his time navigating the corporate world as an Orthodox Jew, and explains the critical difference between managing risk and embracing uncertainty. Also, deciding when and how to speak out on issues. Rabbi Goldberg says goodbye to teaching over Zoom, and the fallout from a Miami Heat player using an anti-Semitic slur. All this and more, Behind the Bema. I am your host, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, joined with my dear friends, Rabbi Philip Moskowitz and Rabbi Josh Brody. It's Wednesday night, 9 o'clock, and we're here to take you... Behind the Bema. <laughs> Behind the Bema. Behind the Bema is like, a, it really has become its own uh, enterprise. I was at a Shloshim earlier today at the Young Israel of Deerfield Beach, and a woman who's slightly older than I am, let us just say, calls me across the machitza. I come to the machitza, and she says... It's nice to be behind the bima with you. I'm like, okay, <laughs> thank you. So we have fans of all age categories. They love the behind the bima. Um, what's the behind the bima? What is it? Our brand. We're going to talk about branding tonight. They love the behind the bima brand. So it's good to be together again, gentlemen. I want to thank our sponsors for tonight once again for the third week in a row. Our dear friend Jeremy Gelbart and BeeperMD.com. Beeper B E E P E R M D.com. Free at home PCR testing. $30 rapid test. Unfortunately, we're still in this time and this period where we're talking about having to be tested and knowing what we have to be safe and to keep the community secure. And this is an amazing, easy way to do it. Free at-home PCR testing. $30 rapids. BeeperMD.com. Also tonight, we have a sponsor. My new dear friend, Rafi Aguilar. Rafi Aguilar lives in L.A. currently. Checked out our community and was great, grateful for the hospitality, the warmth he felt on his stay, and is a co-sponsor of tonight's Wave saying thank you to our community. Rafi is a huge sports fan. We had a little debate while he was here about who's the GOAT, who's the greatest that ever lived, the greatest of all time in basketball. He's from L.A., so Kobe's up there for him. Of course, the answer is MJ Jordan. There's no close second Jordan. even. But you know, he, ever, he even entertained LeBron. Early this year, the NBA warned LeBron against... Um, flopping. Any player who has to be warned against flopping, Rabbi Brody, you have no idea what that is, but it's pretending that you were fouled or hit and falling to the ground. If you have to be warned against flopping, you're not even in, in the debate about being the GOAT. No GOAT needs to be warned by the league about flopping. Fair or not fair? Totally fair. I'll even take it a step further. What makes MJ the GOAT is not just his superiority on the basketball court. He changed the face of the game. Those of us who grew up in the 90s and during that era, he changed basketball. He made it really right. an international phenomenon. And I, I think that's really what puts him a step ahead of everyone else. He was also constantly engaged in psychological warfare with the people he was Absolutely. playing against. And I, I always thought that was interesting. Competitive, about killer instinct. He wanted to win. And um, yeah, this is not a sports show, but Rafi is sponsoring tonight and he doesn't have the mic. We do. So I thought we'd take advantage to, to weigh in in our opinion there. I also think, not that I'm uh, using this opportunity to rank on, on LeBron, but LeBron, when asked All-Star Weekend whether he was going to be taking the vaccine, equivocated and refused to be committal. And considering that the African-American community as a minority community has disproportionately suffered from coronavirus and the importance of endorsing the vaccine as the solution... I think that if he wants to be a spokesperson for social change and for that type of thing, it was his opportunity to be really strong in talking about the vaccine as the solution. And um, I think he lost and missed an opportunity there. You know, it's interesting you said that because Michael Jordan, one of the things he was criticized for, but he felt very strongly, was that he specifically did not speak out about issues 
relating right. to the community. He felt very strongly right. that he's a basketball player. That's all he is. He was building his brand as a basketball player, and he specifically did not want to speak about social justice issues, which actually puts him at odds with our guest tonight because one of the things that Jeff Swartz prided himself when he was at the CRM of Timberland, hopefully we'll get into that in the conversation, was that he prided his organization on being committed to social justice, to social change, and he viewed his role as the CEO of Timberland as a platform to affect that change. Yeah, well, uh, Jordan famously said that, um, he said Republicans also buy sneakers when he was asked why he didn't right. come out. Republicans also buy sneakers. And I'm not saying that that was, we're not saying that that was correct of Jordan. I don't think LeBron is the goat on the court or off the court missing that opportunity. We're not a sports show, but I think it is an interesting question about the responsibility of people to speak outside of their comfort zone or their lane on those issues. So, for example, on last week's episode of Behind the Bima, we talked about an, an Aguna case, a real live Aguna case, and we were not shy, and we won't be shy again to call out Naftali Ayal Sharabani, whose wife has been in Aguna for over 10 years. A seir was issued by the Basin Tzedek of Lakewood, and it's time to give the get, and we're not embarrassed or hesitant or shy to mention or call out his name, but we talked about the complicated nature of this subject, and there's been a lot of push on social media calling on rabbis and calling on uh, people in leadership positions, people who have a platform, have a microphone, to use it for this. So, for example, several prominent Jewish singers were called out that you love your social media platform. It's a way to reach the masses. You've built a career out of it. Use it for this. And one of them was texting me back and forth, talking about the pressure they're under. And is that fair? Because, you know, for us, it's a no-brainer taking a strong position publicly on the Aguna issue. But... On the other hand, Ain Ladaver Sof, everybody could reach out to anyone who they think has a large platform and bring their issue, their cause. And I'm not equating them. Aguna is particularly acutely painful and difficult and no other solution. And we have to do everything we can. Um, I do think everyone should be outspoken to the degree they can and can influence change. But I will just express my empathy that when you are the target of criticism without necessarily understanding all that goes into that type of decision, it can be it can be complicated. So, you know, th- See, it's a it's question, LeBron, Michael Jordan, Jewish music singers or rabbis. When do you speak out? Here, when here's not? my view. Uh, you know, when you were mentioning the singers. I totally understand what you said, you know, Ain Ladover Sof, like you there's so many issues you're gonna speak about it. At some point you gotta get back to your your business and making music. I don't think you have to hit every cause. I think you have to hit some cause. You have to believe in something. You have to get passionate about something. You have to say, this is something that's so important to me that I'm going to use my platform and I'm going to use that platform to spread awareness about something. And and whatever that cause is going to be for you as the singer, everyone's going to be different and different causes are going to speak to different people. But I do believe it's very important for you to be passionate about something and to use your celebrity status to affect that change. So you're saying there are exceptions to the rule. The Aguna crisis is one of those exceptions. You know I agree with you because it's something we take incredibly seriously. But whoever has a cause thinks that their cause is the exception and then puts that pressure and wonders. And the person is using their platform. In fact, when researching Jeff, our our guest tonight, and he's such an inspiring, such an amazing person, this conversation is really, really going to be fantastic. He got himself into trouble as the CEO of Timberland and a deeply passionate Torah Jew, he made comments about Israel, the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Some of his own employees rebelled, and he came out and he apologized. And he said it was a misstep as the CEO of Timberland, as the company. That's not the place. It's not the time to uh, to be outspoken on that issue. Now, we're grateful. We applaud, right? Because that's our issue. And he was on the right side of it. But you can understand if you're an employee, you say... I don't work at Timberland or from the shoe or apparel company. I'm not looking for advocacy on 
the Israel-Palestinian issue. So it's it's complicated. It, and, it, and I think- it is complicated because you see companies like Disney. Disney's taking very strong stands where they're pulling some of their most popular brands and most popular movies because they're perceived as being outdated with what contemporary sensitivities uh, subscribe to. Right. And many right. people love that about Disney and many people don't love that about Disney. But Disney feels that they have a responsibility as a international global company to take stands on those issues, love it or hate it. Right. right. But listen, well, you know, the, the people who are using, sorry, Rabbi Brody, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that I, I think sometimes we, we, as rabbis, we have to take into consideration that we also have certain goals that we want to achieve. And we have to be very careful because sometimes, like, you know, you could take the short, the short term, uh, you know, win by, by broadcasting something that you think might be a win. And it probably is because like you just said, this is a very important, very hot issue, but other issues that are, might be similar to something like that, that you say, listen, I'm going to get in, I'm going to say something, it's political, it's religious, it's this or that. In the long term, you know, it could hurt your stock. And then all of a sudden, right. you know, everything you wanted to achieve is, is going to fall apart. So, yeah, well, I'll also point out that, something. and this was really what we spoke about last week, many of these issues are complicated. The conclusion is not necessarily complicated in the Aguna crisis. If somebody is legitimately in Aguna and the process has been pursued and, and a legitimate body of Bezdin has determined someone's in Aguna, it's not complicated after that. She deserves our support in every which way and every avenue possible. But the whole concept of, of Aguna and the timing and so on, even our conversation last week was by some taken out of context, misrepresented, criticized publicly online, um, it's, it's complex, and sometimes it's much more convenient for people to oversimplify and to simplify things, but they're complex. And um, so, you know, when you, when you grab that mic and when you use it for advocacy, and, and can you wear different hats? Can you be the rabbi or the Jewish singer or the NBA star and, and have a separate sort of platform or identity where you pursue interests outside of that but remain singularly focused on that pursuit in that area? You know, these are all these are all questions, yeah. and it's Art. convenient for people to simplify them, but they're yeah. but they are complicated. Tonight is a, an interesting night. It's a big night for several reasons. First of all, our production team was debating earlier today. Tonight might be our fiftieth episode. It might be our fiftieth wow. episode. It depends if you count the bonus episodes within the list, but it's possible it's our fiftieth episode. It's also a big night for another reason. We've we've made a decision. Um, I've made a decision in, in my classes, and and part of behind the beam has made a decision where. I am no longer teaching on Zoom. My classes are exclusively now streaming breaking on YouTube news. Live. Gotta... <laughs> it's breaking news. My, my classes are uh, streaming on YouTube Live, and you can listen to them on podcast players and Waitora and so on. And why not Zoom? I'll tell you why not Zoom. And I'm curious for both of your experiences in teaching over, over Zoom. The benefit to me of Zoom was you're part of a community. You're seeing other faces. You make a joke, you see someone smile or laugh. You said something moving, you see somebody's eyes well up with tears. You get a reaction to what you're saying. And it's as close as possible to teaching in front of people or in a classroom. Well, I, I began to find that 99% of people are have the camera off. So you're on a platform where you're talking to yourself anyway. So what's the point of trying to be on YouTube Live, Facebook Live, Zoom? You're trying to manage all these platforms. I was joking about a production team. It's me, myself, and I, just like it is for each of you. You're yourself and you. Um, and... Um, and it's very hard to manage. So made the executive decision. Zoom is great for meetings. Zoom is great for meetings where everyone's camera's on. You're having meetings. We had based in for conversion. We had meetings today. We're having meetings tomorrow. Our regional based in for conversion. Zoom is a great vehicle when you can't be in person. But for classes, no longer on Zoom, streaming on YouTube Live. And for Behind the Beam as well, Facebook has its challenges being on Facebook Live. Um, 
Facebook's a complicated place to begin with, but also even Facebook Live. So we are on YouTube Live, and it looks like many of you are with us nonetheless. Weigh in. Any comments you have about LeBron, Michael Jordan, uh, follow up to the Aguna last week, of course, feel free in the comments to make your point, ask your question. And um, now that we're on YouTube Live, it's also the easiest place to consolidate everything. Subscribe. You can subscribe to the BRS Torah channel or to my channel uh, or to the other rabbis' channels and you'll be notified in real time every time you go live. It's just a very easy way to know every time a new class has been taught. So you see the subscribe button, take a moment to click it. But that's where we are tonight. It's a big night only on YouTube Live. Wow, that is breaking okay. news. That's big. I'm still holding on to Zoom. I'm still holding on to Zoom. Why? It's Well, first of all, I don't have the numbers that you have. So it's a different calculation for me. But I, again, maybe I'm, I'm, mis, I'm underestimating or, or misrepresenting what this means, but there is a benefit in my mind to a little bit of that bantering before a class or a little bit of the bantering after the class that I think you lose when you go onto Facebook Live. And again, as right. you said, like when you're trying to build a community, so it's those little touch points that to me make a difference. And again, I get it. When you get above certain numbers and you can't have that level of interaction, I totally get it. Um, but again, from... I find it hard enough to stare into a screen and to teach on a regular basis, even if there are five people with their videos on. And that's the only thing that I see when I'm talking to Zoom. It gives me a certain energy that is absent when I don't see that at all. Well, what put me over to the top was I was streaming on the several platforms. Very few were coming on Zoom anyway. And there was a point I was teaching the other day that everybody on Zoom had their camera off. So I said, why right. am I doing this? And it's true. YouTube, obviously, you don't see any other faces. YouTube, all you see is what you're broadcasting, but that's what Zoom had become for me. So why try to balance it? So you're right. If I had a small chevra of people I was learning with, a reasonable number, and you know, we do the Kaddish Club, we do certain things where Zoom is a perfect, perfect uh, instrument or tool to use, but teaching en masse, it just it fell out of favor for me. I don't think it's what it was designed for, and it wasn't working. And to me, the biggest reason was the people themselves. People were leaving the camera off. And you can understand that. We can understand that because someone's going to put together a top 10 Zoom disasters of the past year of when the camera was on when someone thought it was off or the camera was off and someone thought it was on. But we don't need to get into it here. This is a child-friendly yeah. show. But there were many such disasters over the past year. So I think people's inclination is they want to see you teaching. Why do they need the camera on and then have to be very self-conscious about what you're seeing from them? So once the cameras are going to be off for me, I might as well go on on YouTube Live because it's really the exact same thing. Yeah, I'll just say, I will say week... though. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, go, ahead. No, go ahead. No, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just going to say that, you know, thank God, like we've taught a lot this year. You probably taught more classes this past year than, than I can ever remember. I'm, thank God, teaching plenty. So we're teaching a lot. I, I don't know about you. I desperately, though, miss that human interaction. There, there's something about being in a room with people when you're teaching a class and either whether it's because there's audience participation and someone raises their hand and they ask right. a question or it's just looking at people and feeling an energy in a room. Absolutely. And, and you really miss that as a teacher, as an educator. Yeah, mm -hmm. teaching into a screen is nice. Yeah, giving drushes even, which is much more of a passive experience for the listener is nice. But there's something really, really that I crave yeah. and miss about the energy in a room. I couldn't agree with you more. The way Torah is meant to be transmitted is in person. And, you know, like they say in Israel, like the everyone's sitting there looking at each other, exchanging that energy. We get that still on Shabbos, a drusha, a woman's class, the class in the afternoon. Um, but we miss it. I'm actually, 
This is a radical Shabbos Agadol next Motzei Shabbos. We gave the opportunity people can come either live in person or watch it online because there are people who are not yet comfortable and can't yet come in person. And it'll be my first time speaking in a room with people without the mask and uh, run by our task force. I'm vaccinated, fully vaccinated in several weeks past. Um, and we'll start the seating far back. So there's plenty of distance. I'm vaccinated. Our task force, of course, okayed it. CDC guidelines um, don't address that specific situation. But if you think about the head of the CDC (laughs) or the president of the United States or the White House spokesperson, anytime they're at the podium, even though the press corps is still wearing masks, whoever's at the podium is not. So we're not doing that yet on a typical Shabbos. But for Shabbos, people will have the option. They could watch it online or they can be in person. But we will let them know that uh, won't be wearing the mask for that. I will just say that's a tragic end of an era. I'm again. I get it. I understand it. It's not wearing it's the mask because of COVID. No, the Shabbos afternoon, Shabbos Agado, Shabbos Shuva. For those who have never been in Boca Raton Synagogue, it is a unique, special experience, and it's not just the Torah. Your Shabbos Agado, Shabbos Shuva is amazing, fantastic. There's Very kind. A, Rabbi Brody, you know what I'm talking about. There's an atmosphere Big. in the room. Exciting. There's an energy in the room that's palpable. It's the only time of the year that our entire community comes together to learn Torah. All different minyanim, all different segments of the community, different demographics, different age Standing groups. Standing room only. Standing room only, and it's beautiful. And again, I think Motzei Shabbos is going to be nice, but there are going to be cell phones. People, pockets are going to be buzzing. There's something about that time of Shabbos as it's ebbing away, right. as you're reading the crescendo, reaching the crescendo of your drusha where you're hitting the point. And tell you, the way you describe this drusha, you make me want to go, wow. No, because it's amazing. I'm telling you, I, I really, I fear you're going to lose a little bit on Saturday night. I, I don't know it's the end of the era. It. It's for now. Listen, there are still people who can't come. There is a older Holocaust survivor in our community that um, I sometimes joke, I wish my wife loved me as much as she loves him and looks up to him and admires him. And he's he's absolutely amazing. He's vaccinated and we were going to be hosting. We're vaccinated for Pesach Seder, but his family's not yet comfortable. There are people vaccinated over a certain age. They're still not ready to come. And it's complicated because they're still suffering and struggling from the loneliness and isolation. But that's a determination of their family. And none of us want to take that risk of telling them to do it and then not know the consequence that will that will happen. So, um, you, you know, you got to make it available. I'm not saying it's permanent going to be this way, but for now, we got a lot more to talk about, including, of course, uh, we're going to address, as our audience would expect, nothing less, the Myers-Leonard situation. With a name like Myers, you would never think you'd make an anti-Semitic slur. If your name is Myers, how could you say something anti-Semitic? Like, that should be a layup not to be anti-Semitic. Your name is Myers. Anyway, but we'll come back to that. But we now have the great honor, the great privilege, the great pleasure of welcoming someone who's been a hero to all of us, Jeff Swartz, uh, former CEO of Timberland, amazingly inspiring person who's embraced the life of Torah, third generation Timberland. His grandfather started the company, bought a previous shoe company, and then changed it to Boots, changed its name. He was the third generation CEO, but really took this uh, company, Timberland, uh, built that brand and its recognition and the market cap and value of the company, sold it several years ago, is learning Torah and doing philanthropy. He is a really extraordinary, extraordinary person, and we are so honored and grateful that he has agreed to join us for a conversation this evening. And without any further ado... We are joined by the great Jeff Swartz, the former CEO of Timberland. And it is a great honor to have you with us. And we so appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you for joining us. Yerushalayim sends love, Rabbi. Wow. Oh, how, how desperately we'd Amazing. love to be there to visit. As soon as the skies open up and we're allowed in, we will be there. Mirza Hashem. 
So I'll, I'll just start out by saying that you know we, we feel connected. I know Rabbi Moskowitz has a long-standing relationship with you and your family. I also feel connected because Boca is home to your amazing parents, Sid and Judy Swartz, who are good friends of our community. We've worked together through APAC and many other causes. Their passion for the U.S.-Israel relationship has inspired all of us. So it's it's really great to be together. And I have to offer you a personal thanks because when in Florida the temperature dips and it gets cold, like the freezing cold 50s and 60s, I put on my collection of Timberland fleeces through Yeshiva University and the Rabbi Soloveitchik Institute. It's a, actually a collector's item, my Rabbi Soloveitchik Institute Timberland fleece. But I thank you for keeping us warm, literally and metaphorically, with your leadership. Thank you so much. The fire of your Torah keeps us warm, so you should stay physically warm, please. Right. <laughs> thank you. There's so much to talk to you about. Obviously, a business leader, an inspiration of, of somebody's Torah observant and a, a leader in philanthropy in the community. Um, you didn't grow up personally observant. Maybe we can begin by sharing your story about what turned you on to a Torah observant way of life. It's a, it's a lovely uh, question to think about, and uh, it, it's relevant. I, I am um, having this strange experience of being my grandfather. So uh, my father's father was a man I loved. He was in many regards a hero to me. He came to America at the turn of the last century. He was an immigrant. And when he came to Ellis Island, he made his first business deal. They said, you trade in your name and your language and your culture. Uh, and you become an American. And and my grandfather, uh, Dedushka, in Russian, he was very eager to make that trade. I don't think he wanted to give up where he came from, but he did want to become an American. It, uh, it, was, a, it was a big deal to him. Um, coming to Israel uh, in, in, on, Ali, on Aliyah this summer is is the, sort of the, the in, in, in many ways, it's sort of the the, the co- making concrete this process of becoming, which is uh, which is deep inside me, and, and I I have to say about my parents, I don't believe that they intended that uh, that uh, things would necessarily turn out the way they turned out in terms of religious practice. My poor mother uh, struggles in in the in I think the best possible way um, to to make sure that her grandchildren and her great grandchildren come to her house in Florida and can eat kosher food and my my dad spends uh, literally mamash every single day with a yad I don't know why with a yad but he sits with a yad and he reads he reads not parshat shavua he just reads in the mikra every single day why because when his oldest grandson was at day school in Boston um, at the Maimonides school. Uh, we had, my parents came for Friday night dinner and um, uh, it was time for dinner and no dad and no son. So missing two generations. So I went upstairs and I found uh, my son, probably, I don't know, maybe 10, 11 years old, sitting on the bed, his bed with his grandfather, who again is the biggest, toughest guy I ever met, built a big business, Chazak, yep. And I, I see this, this is hot to see this and not be seen. So Daniel, who's my son, is saying to my dad, um, Pop, this is Rashi. And Rashi has that same question. And I see the two of them, and I don't mean to get emotional, but I went downstairs and I said to Debbie, Kiddush will be in a few minutes. Uh, It will be in a few minutes because the the two of them are having a conversation. And dad said to me afterwards, "Uh, look, I'm going to have to learn this, this Torah stuff because I want to be in relationship with my grandsons. And so uh, it's it is so how do you why do you choose a, an observant life i don't know i i do know that um uh there there is a, a language that uh of of um 
of, uh, of emotion that, that is not intellectual. And uh, there, there was uh, a need, I mean, a burning need inside uh, me uh, to be uh, part of the history of the Jewish people, N not in a looking backwards way. Um, I'm sorry, I'm talking so much, but I remember without fail, I can show you where I was in the kitchen when the first, uh, the first time I opened up a Gemara, it, it, it came to me in, in the mail, I had ordered it, and I opened it up and I put it on the counter. And again, uh, I try not to be emotional, but I put my, I didn't put my eyes on it, I put my hand on the daf. And I, and I was a good brand builder, and so in my business world, and so I had a sense, that it was sensual. And so this, but I put my hand on the daf physically and I felt like coming from the ground of this thing, I, I felt heat and light, and I felt so. It, it's not it's uh, it's not an intellectual point. Uh, I, I was so well educated in a Western sense that I almost was too well educated. Meaning, you you stop, you, you only think and you don't feel. There is, and so I believe that the heart of of this was was not words. Even though I'm a text guy, I learn I learn every day with all the insecurity that comes of being in you know. Uh, you know, my grandson, my four-year-old here is, uh, he, he starts with it, it's just, I, I, you know, he doesn't understand the world that doesn't, he's got a, you know, a grandfather who always, Zadie is always going to be insecure about what he does and doesn't know because I want, I want this young man, I adore with all my heart, to, to understand the world is this way, not that way. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, there's an intellectual part of, of becoming observant, but at the end of the day, it's always about, it's always about uh, at the boys' wedding um, weddings. It didn't matter where they were. It just mattered that that uh, at, before mincha they sang. Rabbi Goldberg, when they sang, whoa! Uh, you could just close your eyes and cry because they were singing, and uh, everybody, all the the different wings of the family, some of whom, most of whom, are not traditionally religious now. Um, they could all close their eyes and they didn't understand in an intellectual sense, but they felt like in the deepest sense. Um, so uh, I think there's a there's a some kind of journey of, of intellect and emotion that that rub against each other and the friction between the two has created the reality that we live today. I could listen to you describe this forever. Because <laughs> it's, it's, moving, it's moving me almost to tears. It's really what a beautiful romantic description description of, of falling in love with with Torah and with Judaism and it's so powerful and the imagery and it's so important for all of us to think about how we connect through the generations and and what we're willing to do in order to maintain that connection that continuity really really profound and and I, I want to make sure Rabbi Moskowitz and I really get in here but my, my real question then based on that so you had it all you're the CEO of a major brand company uh, super successful, thank God, beautiful family, and you chose and embraced this way of life without, so to say, needing it by what the world would define as the measures and metrics for happiness. And you did embrace it, and you embraced it, and then you didn't see it as parallel or separate from your corporate life. Um, from what I've read, you've integrated it. I remember reading a Business Week article many years ago that talked about, correct me if I'm wrong, I was much younger, but I remember reading that when you fly with, with colleagues, when you flew with colleagues on behalf of Timberland, you carried two bags, two briefcases. And they knew that if you opened one, they should talk to you. It was the one that had your corporate documents. And if you opened the other to leave you alone, it was the one that had your Gemara. You weren't shy, you weren't embarrassed, you weren't afraid to engage Torah study in the context of, of that business. And to be an Orthodox Jew 
at the head of a major company, Timberland, and I love the company, by the way. I love all the things that it that it produces. So h- how did you do that? How did you do that without hesitation? Or maybe you had hesitation, but how did you seemingly not have hesitation without shame, without cause for concern? Were you worried about being an Orthodox or at least identified an Orthodox observant Jew in that position? How did you navigate? What were the complications? What would the message be to other people who are aspiring to climb the corporate ladder or the business ladder and are struggling with, with being transparent about their religious identity in that context? Those are uh, very powerful questions, and, and I have to have deep humility. Um, you know, uh, we, I grew up in Boston, and, and so... Um, when it was important for me to be COVID Roche, uh, I, 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 of course, was, you know, everybody has to flip out. So how did I flip out? I wore a keeper and a baseball hat. So that was, that was COVID Roche, maybe, I mean, boom. So I felt the extra hat, the Red Sox and the, and the, and the kippa. Um, so from, so there's two, there's two edges to that, right? Right, Rabbi Goldberg, there's, a, there's an identity. Who do I want to be? And, and there has to be a, a sense of, um, the world around me. And so uh, I, I, I could tell you two funny stories. Um, in, in the context of, of trying to lead the company uh, to be um, modeled, you know, to, be modeled to, to, uh, to live its values, right? To, to be uh, um, a commerce and justice enterprise, um, you, you end up engaging, if you're, if you're lucky and you work hard, you, you engage multiple stakeholders. And so um, I remember uh, an experience, very vivid one. My oldest son was at the Gush. He was learning, um, that, which is a story to, in its own regard, right? You know, when De- Debbie said to me, um, the kids go to yeshiva? I said, yeah. Uh, she said, you say, yeah, like you know you're talking about. I said, no, I, I know it's a fact. I don't know anything else about it. I, I, you know, <laughs> I, it, it, it is what happens. I don't yet. Yeah, I know that. Uh, and she said, so how are we going to do this? And so I had this trip, uh, we came here uh, and we, we experienced yeshiva, it was an amazing experience. Um, and so Dana was at the Kush and I was invited to a, uh, a forum, uh, a fa- as, they were, as my grandfather said, fancy people, uh, right? It was, uh, it was the President Clinton, uh, anyways, uh, it was in New York and fine, fine, fine. And so in the morning I had, I had a business thing. And so I was Timberland, right? So I had on the t-shirt and blah, 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 the fleece and my baseball hat. And I gave the interview, environmental, oh, terrific. And then I raced over to this event and you have to work your way through the Secret Service. Um, and somebody's waiting for me, very nice person. And she gives me the suit bag and I run into the men's room. And, you know, this is a trick to get out of your Timberland rig and into your suit in the men's room. And I, but I've mastered this, you know, this is the changing of identity, right? This is, this is like, take off one mask and, and, and then what do you do? Do you put on another mask? So um, I was supposed to appear with President Clinton in this specific context. And I come running out of the bathroom uh, with all the Timberland stuff jumped into my suit bag. And I hand it to this young lady who was my colleague. And, I, and it was a coincidence that literally at that moment, at the moment he was the prime minister, uh, Tony Blair was standing there and he said, hi, how are you? I said, fine, how are you? I'm chatting, <laughs> very nice. And, and so I handed the thing to Carolyn and uh, so we were chatting and that was just fine. And so we, but we're now running out of time. We're gonna go to the, to, the, to the venue and the president's waiting. And she says to me quietly from here, she says, boss. And I said, she, I don't know what she called me boss, but she teased me, she says, boss. I said, yeah. She says, 
I need you to listen quiet. This is, this is almost like the midrash for Lech Lecha. She shows, she shows beautiful kindness. She says, I need you to just hear me out for just a minute. You look great. Your suit is good. Your tie is straight. And you didn't put your baseball hat on. And she said, you need to understand, Jeff. She never called me Jeff. She said, you need to understand, Jeff. Nobody's fooled by the baseball hat. She said, I understand you need the baseball hat, but I need you to know in the moment, you're not wearing the baseball hat. She said, I, I, I don't want you to wear the baseball hat, but that's not my choice. That's your choice. And I said, uh, give me a phone for a second. She gives me a phone. I literally, like, like I, I'm in line to sight, the TV cameras, all this other junk. And I called Daniel in, in the gush. And I said to him, uh, he, I never called him. He only called me. So I called him and he said, you know, Matal Torah, I'm learning. I said, he said, yeah. I, I said uh, I'm about to go on stage with President Clinton. He said, and you're calling me? I said, yep. He said, why? I said, no baseball hat. And he said, why'd you call me? And I said, I don't know. I just need a little physic. And he said, smile at the camera and don't fuss with your tie. And he hung up. <laughs> and actors, uh, uh, President Clinton said to me, "Like, you know, the baseball hat's kind of a bad joke. Nobody gets the baseball hat." I said, "Yes, sir, I get it." He said, "What are you afraid of?" I said, "I, I, I don't know." And he said, "Figure it out." And I said, wow. "Okay." I still haven't. I haven't. I'm a pachad guy, not yira, not and you know, as Rambam says. So I'm not even tipesh Rambam. I'm 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 below tipesh in Rambam's view. Because uh, I'm pachad, not even yira. Uh, it, it's funny. I I oscillate between pachad and ahava. I don't have the brains to land at yira, and so um, was I. Was this? Is this journey terrifying? It is. Mamash, it's terrifying. Every minute of every day, it, on on some regards, it's terrifying. That's why I had to come to the land of Israel, uh, because in the land of Israel, um, there's room for it to be terrifying in a different way. Here. Uh, it doesn't matter uh, to anybody else, uh, whereas in America it does. And so um, to be a Bentora or to be an aspirational Bentora in, in America, I think is a different kind of challenge um, because you are, uh, you are a threatened minority in an increasingly threatening context. And so uh, if you're a Pachad guy, I don't mean a Pachad like to come to get us, which in fact I do believe, um, but Pachad in the sense of don't be... Uh, the, the, the pressure for me felt very high. It feels very high still. Um, and uh, I don't know how that ever changes. So um, what do you say to somebody else? I, I am still struggling, deeply struggling with, um, I do understand why when Bnei Israel sees uh, Moshe walk into the cloud, they're frightened. I absolutely understand that. Where do you go? Because um, he didn't walk, he, he, it looks like he walks into nothing, into, into, into danger, but I believe, deeply believe Moshe didn't see that Moshe didn't understand the, he didn't understand the problem because he knew God was in the cloud. He, the, he, and so he wasn't walking into the unknown. He didn't need a direct, he just like, okay, walk. He didn't manage risk. He embraced uncertainty. That's hmm. faith that it, in a way that, uh, um, that, if you could give a bracha to somebody, that's what I would say, which is, it's not about managing risk. 
It's about embracing uncertainty. But embracing uncertainty sounds bizarre. It sounds like you're being like a kamikaze or something. No, embracing uncertainty is like there's there is God in this club. I'm not frightened. He didn't he didn't inch his way and he walked his way in calmly. I inch always because uh, I'm a risk manager. That was what I was taught to do in corporate life. And that's how I think about it, even in spiritual and religious terms. I, 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 it's hard to come into the firm community and it's hard to stay in the firm community, not in social orthodox sense, but in the deep sense of being vulnerable and exposed. And I don't know the answer to this. And you know, the, my rabbi, Rabbi Benjamin Samuels in Newton is a magnificent uh, heart as I don't know, there's no rankings of the hearts and heads and souls, but uh, this, you know, follow the minhag of your father. He and I laugh about that. I adore my father. I take a bullet from my father and I have. But when you ask, what's, do you wear chillin' during Chol Chamoid? Follow the minhag of your father. It's not, it's not, it's not an operationally relevant point. And so, uh, the, but follow the minhag of your father. My, my dad modeled, as my father's father did too, embracing uncertainty. And in, in, in a narrow sense, Rabbi, that was the most important religious gift my dad ever gave me. I don't think I've ever told him that. Now I think I will, because please God, he's turning 85 soon. I think the biggest gift he gave me was not to be, was, was he, his dogma is to walk into the cloud. He knows God's there and he just goes. He wouldn't say that, but that's the faith lesson he taught me. And so um, that's what I would, that's the bracha I'd give to somebody who's worried. Like, where do I stand in things? That's risk management. There's another universe out here called uncertainty. Interrogate that universe because that's where, uh, as Bruce Springsteen would say, dreams are found and lost. That's 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 where I think that's where the story is. That's amazing. First of all, I want to thank you so much for uh, for being with us. And again, all the Boston references is making me nostalgic. Um, I remember at one point a number of years ago, probably 15 years ago. Um, I had arranged for you to come and speak at Yeshiva University to a group of business students at the Sai Sim School of Business. And at the time, you took out your backpack, which was then one backpack, and you said, I always have two books in it. You said, I always have my Gemara, my Dafyomi, and I always have a novel. And I, if you could explain to our listeners why you felt, you've explained the Gemara side of things. Why did you feel the novel was so central to who you are, to your development as a person, to your approach to the world, that those are the two books you carry around with yourselves at all time. Rabbi Moskowitz, that's a beautiful uh, thing. It's a big gift, and I thank you for reminding me. Debbie said to me, I like you better when you read. Um, and, and she didn't, she knows I learn every day, so that, that's not what she meant. She meant when you, when you take time to, um, to read, because um, there is something about the experience of, of uh, of uh, Yavanit, uh, of, of seeing the, the world through different lenses that that um, keeps me from, well, it makes me less vulnerable to the Hamids, that's me. Um, that's one thing. Uh, and the second thing is, uh, uh, I, I, so I just finished the yeshiva by Chaim Grada over Sh on Shabbat, uh, before Mincha, I finished the, this, this magnificent, Magnificent long novel, and I love the the, the that genre, uh, the, the, a post-war sadness and beautiful. But Grada's novel is uh, is different because he's not just telling you the story like uh, Dunister tells you in the Family Mashber, or, or Singer talks about. He's talking about the interior life of of, of Ben Torah. He must have been the guy who lived inside both worlds, um, and that to me is the, is the novel world. It, it it's it's not competing wisdoms. There is no competing, right? 
you can write in black ink on white paper or in black fire and black uh, on white fire. And so there's no competition there. But there, there is though for me um, something really important about uh, reminding myself uh, that my job is not to aspire to heaven, but uh, but to be about uh, the, the the place I'm standing. But Rabbi Simla's that was Rabbi Simla's first tour to me was. was he, the question he asked me, which just it's, it blew my brains then, it still blows my brain now. Why is the is the bracha for Torah study the way it is? What, what why does it say la sot bidivrei Torah? What's what? It, and he said, you know, your Hebrew is not that good. But what is la, la sot? What do you? A businessman is is an isha sakim. A business. What, what's the business of Torah? Um, I look for the business of Torah. I, I'm sorry. I look for Torah everywhere I go. I listen to it in the music I hear. I listen to it in the in the in the business conversations. In the social justice conversations and in the novels, I I hear it, uh, in and sometimes it makes me cry in a sad way because you have people who are Jewish uh, and they're writing novels and they don't know the Torah that they're talking about or they're pushing away the Torah they're talking about. Okay, uh, everybody's got their journey. I find that the the experience of art and beauty um, to be a a challenge to me to and I I want to look at it. What does Rabbi Salavitchik say? If you look at a beautiful lake and you think that's a beautiful lake, you're wasting time. You should think that's a mikvah. And I think, um, I don't know if I quoted that right. I'm sure I didn't. Uh, I love the challenge of chesed and gevura. I want to see both the beautiful lake and the mikvah at the same time. And in, like this morning, I was learning, I'm learning in the Dharam now in Yerushalmi. And there was, a, there was a big conversation in Yerushalmi about only God can say two things at one time. And, and, and he gives me like five sukim where, where, where he shows you that this is said at the same time. Some are reasonably radical. They're, they're, it's not one pasuk. It's two psukim from two different places. But Yerushalmi says they're said at the same time. Beautiful. It's very magnificent. Um, and only Hashem can say things, two things at the same time. And humans can't, li- can't hear things. I get it, not intellectually, but sometimes with a novel, or sometimes with a, with a symphony, or sometimes with a with a with the ocean or the lake or the the Hermon is covered in snow. It's it's like it's not I can hear it. It's somehow like I can't express it, but I can feel it. It's like yep, two two psukim at one time, and I think to myself, I'm doing my job now. I'm now I'm alive. I'm doing my job. I can feel both of them. That's great. wow. So I got to say, I got to get handed to Rabbi Moskowitz because I think for the last 10 years since he got to Boca, he's been saying, <laughs> I know this guy, Jeff, at Timberland. Every year we're going to get Jeff. And we're starting to doubt that he really knows you, but this is fantastic. <laughs> so it finally, it finally works out. Oh, this is great. So as rabbis here in Boca, we're constantly trying to invent and reinvent you know, creative programs to engage more and more Jews in our local Jewish community and beyond. I saw an interview with you where you were talking about presenting exciting new ideas to your board of directors at Timberland. You also mentioned Springsteen again. I noticed that seems to come up. Maybe we'll talk uh, about that after. <laughs> and you mentioned the boss before. It comes up in different ways, I noticed, subliminally, yeah. right? Okay. And you said, you know, the first question that they legitimately ask you is, does the consumer demand that? On the other hand, Steve Jobs has famously said, some people say, give the customer what they want. But that's not my approach. Our job is to figure out what they're going to want before they do. People don't know what they want until you show it to them. So should we stick to our market research here in Boca or continue to dream? I love your question, Brody. It's, 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 it's profound. And the answer, of course, is yes. Meaning it, it's presented as if it were an or, 
right? So Procter & Gamble, in, in, in the industry that I used to come in, there's sort of two approaches. One is the creative tyrant, everybody in blue, right? That's George Armani. Procter & Gamble's approach to that is let's research the daylights out of how somebody washes dishes and let's find an innovation that'll make their experience of washing dishes differently, uh, better, right? Ah, I never thought if I could, whatever, lovely. And they pose as dialectic, right, as, 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 as a choice and there's no intersection between them. And I, I, I never met Steve Jobs. Um, and I, in a narrow sense, I'm embarrassed to say I do use the, the, the products because I think there's some hard things about the supply chain there. And I also think there's some, um, I hope unintended, but really pernicious outcomes that come from uh, an over, uh, an, un, an unreflected use of technology. But I don't think Jobs was saying an or, I think he was saying an and. and um, I, I, I deeply, deeply believe that um, the rabbis of, of Boca um, have to do both, um, but the premise point, and you wouldn't be who you are, right? And so I should have started that this way, and I, I ask your forgiveness. I should have started by saying thank you, not for the opportunity, which I'm grateful for, but I should have said thank you for what you do, because, um, it, it, and, and I didn't say for who you are, because I don't know you, I know Robert Moskowitz, I don't know you, but I can, but what do they say? Show me your friends and I'll tell you uh, about you, but also show me your shlichut and I'll tell you about you. And so to be the rabbis of Boca Raton is um, right? It, it, it's not the, the obvious answer, right? It, it, it isn't. And it's, yet it's your answer. And so the first thing anybody should say is thank you for what you do. Who you are is who you are, but what you do is a choice that you make and it's powerful and it's brave and it's lo pashut. It's not obvious. And if you add COVID and Michigas and, and uh, you, you know, all the horrible things that are happening as democracy devolves in the United States, um, okay, it, it just makes it harder. And so you can't miss the point, and I almost did, of, of failing to say, um, but Emmett, from the heart, from, from the depth, from the Oma, you're supposed to say, uh, thank you. And I mean it. And if, and if your, if your um, kahal, uh, your kahal feels the same way. They don't say it. They don't always act it, um, but they feel the same thing. And uh, and I ask you to um, to close your eyes and believe me on this point. They, they do. I don't know them, but I but I know it's true. That's one. The second thing is, um, I I I deeply believe this point about uncertainty versus risk. I think in the in the latter in 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 recent history, Jewish organized Jewish life has been organized around risk management, and it is a failed premise hmm. it should be organized around uncertainty it's it, it and um, the, the there is you think about this business case rabbi Schachter, when he was at the rabbi salajik institute and i had this conversation before yachi kala um before the rabbeim came to town and i said it is an amazing industry we've created he said tell me more i said look i wish i was as good at my job as as they are at theirs who are you talking about i said the 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 the, the organized jewish community is is magnificent. They have managed. We have now, I'm not they. Let me put this way: I have managed to create an industry of education that's made Torah uninteresting. That is a magnificent <laughs> business victory. I mean, you have to get out of bed and Procter and Gamble. No, no, no. Procter and Gamble is a bunch of pikers from the Midwest. They they, they have no stock. They, they, they can make dishwashing interesting. They can earn a living 
by having insight about dishwashing. And we've succeeded with a generation who has more educational opportunity, more experiential opportunity to make Torah uninteresting. That's awesome. That it, it's not awesome in a good way, but it's awesome in a business sense. Like, wow, maybe everybody who's a Jewish educator should go to Procter and Gamble because and their stock will double because if you if we can make Torah uninteresting, um, so job said, um, know what they want. This is why I said thank you, Rabbi Brody, because you know what they want. You know that the warmth and the beauty and the strength and the purpose and the the demands and the and the the you know all my bones will will, will cry out. My bones will cry out. The trees sing. Okay, you know what Jews want, it, it, and and they'll tell you that's not what they want. And they show it to you by not showing up, and they show it to you by we show up to you by being, you know, I'm hard. It's like we bite the rabbis. It's true. But that's what we're saying. That's not who we are. That's not what we believe. You, you, you have to be Jobsian in your absolute conviction that I, I heard what you said, Jeff. I know you don't want to listen. And I know you kind of rolled your eyes and kvetch, kvetch, kvetch. I know what you want. You don't know what you want, but you really, really do want. It is there. It, and I and look, I am in this narrow sense. Um, I'm not an anecdote. Right, um, you know the the plural anecdote is not a polite word uh, because it's not data. But I so I don't, I'm not I'm not making a data argument, but I'm telling you in deep truth. Um, I was blessed. I remember I continue to be blessed by the generations that invested in me and all the ways they invested in me. But I'm sitting here today, sweating in my heart about Torah and about the light and strength and the demand and the challenge of Torah. And you know what's unusual about that? Nothing, absolutely nothing. There's nothing about this story that, that that's relevant. It's it's irrelevant. It, it is normative. I had a congressman, he's now a congressman. His name is Richie Torres. He's a Democrat out of uh, the Bronx, the poorest, the, the, the New York 15th. It's the poorest congressional district in the United States. And I went to see Richie uh, when he was a, when he was getting ready to run for Congress in this cycle, and he's a he describes himself as a black brown so black, black he's Hispanic and African American and he's a gay uh, a gay uh, man and uh, and he says he is a passionate Zionist and so we, we walked together uh, on the streets and. I went to see him because that's what you should do, right? You should go see the leaders, be respectful to the rabbin. So I walked with him. At the end, we sat down and I, and I said, I have to admit, I don't get it. He said, what's that? I said, I don't get your support. I said, you see, you're part of the problem. Hmm. I thought, that's a bold response. What do you mean I'm part of the problem? He said, you think that because I'm a, a progressive left-wing Democrat, that therefore I would be anti-Israel, anti-Zionist. And he said, you bought the wrong rhetoric. You, so like you should think it's normative. I, you should believe that I am the standard, not the thousands of who say Israel, this Israel, that blah, 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 BDS, all that bad stuff. Richie said, why don't you reframe your view of the sugi? He didn't say sugi. You are the sugi and said, I'm the normative one. I'm not exceptional. Hey, look, except you treat me that way. Okay. I want to believe deeply. I need to. I'm a Zaidi. Uh, CEOs understand me. Zadie's interesting to me. I want to believe that I'm normative, that I got lost along the generations, uh, not in, in moral terms, but in Jewish religious terms, and that with grace and support of my parents and, and my 
Ishan Khayyam, she ain't getting paid enough, right? To, to put up with a mission guy that's me. But at this point, you know, um, Amalia Halel, who's two, comes to Friday night dinner. Can you imagine this? My grandchildren come to my table Friday night in Yerushalayim. Not a shazachav. It's it, it, it's beautiful, but the eternal capital of the Jewish people. And she says, "How did he like to die?" And she throws the water everywhere. And two years <laughs> old, and she thinks that's normative. The only reason she thinks that normative is because she knows there's nothing special about my story. And the 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 the, the craziest disconnected person in Boca is just Jeff waiting for the right conversation. Steve Jobs knew that, and you do too. And so, if if you need to be reminded, I say to you with the deepest humility. You are Steve Jobs, and I'm ready to buy your iPhone. Okay, I'm blown away. My mind is racing in a million <laughs> directions. I want to come learn in your in your yeshiva that you're the Rosh Yeshiva yeah. because this is all amazing. So, I, but I want I do want to come back, and I don't know how much time we have, but I, because we could do this for hours on end for more side. But <laughs> I do want to come back because I want to ask a specific question because we have a real expert. We have access right now um, to to somebody who's a real expert and. And you built a brand, you're a brand expert, an international multi-billion dollar corporate brand. Timberland slogan, boots, brand, belief. Uh, it's all about the brand. So we are a shul, unlike many shuls, we've tried to build a brand. We have a tagline, valuing diversity, celebrating unity. Um, it's on all of our literature. We've actually launched recently a BRS global community where we've said thanks to technology and embracing what Corona challenged us, we pivoted to go online. And what we discovered is that we have the local offline community, which is, of course, our primary responsibility. But we have also an online global community. And we've tried to grow that brand. So if you could give some young, we consider ourselves young, um, <laughs> brand aspirational rabbis, how you can incorporate the notion of a brand, of a logo, of a slogan into a shul and a community life in not only a philosophical way as you just articulated so beautifully, passionately, but very specifically, give us some brand expertise. Give us, a, I can't even imagine the value that we'll get if you can answer this question, but give us some brand expertise about how, how shul and community can consider growing a brand. I, first of all, what an amazing chiddush uh, uh, to, to imagine radiating your, your, your story. Uh, uh, online to audiences that wouldn't necessarily be able to participate locally. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. The the idea um, is is a transmission point, right? In, in, in what's the pasukim, the pasuk in Malachim where the Rashi asks, "Are the windows of Beit Hamikdash like this inside, or are they like this?" And his answer is kind of yes. Which is, uh, which is a beautiful answer, right? Which is that we want to bring the light in and we want to shine the light out. Boy, you talk about living the Torah. Wow. Um, I think that um, there, there, there are two things that I would say with deep humility, because I don't know nothing about nothing. The first thing I would say is most change makers, Robert Boyd and I were talking about this a minute ago, are, are invested mind, body, and soul in changing the narrative. Right. Jeff Canada was a friend and, and teacher of mine in the Harlem Children's Zone. He and I worked together for a lot of years. And Jeff said the narrative of an African-American boy in the Harlem Children's Zone when, he, when I started was two things, death or prison. Those are the two alternatives. That's the narrative arc of a, the long, life of a young African-American boy in Harlem in this specific geography. And he said, I'm going to change that narrative. And he spent 150 percent of his time, energy and, and genius changing the narrative. And he succeeded in a way that was impossible. And, um, in our Chavruta, it was a strange one, but a, a, one I treasured and still treasure. I said to him, 
um, look, this is a pill pool thing. He's bigger than me and he's a, he's a martial artist. I said, don't, don't kill me, but I need you to hear this. You spent 150% of your time changing the narrative. You're spending none of your time narrating the change. And, and if you don't spend some time narrating the change, you will be, you, you, you get this cycle of, of, of uh, show team. Uh, you know, it, it, why does the story keep repeating itself? Why, 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 why don't we learn? Because I don't think people spend enough time to narrate the change. They, they're, they're, they're leading you through the change, but they expect you to understand it yourself, but you're experiencing the change. And so there, there, there needs to be sort of this third angle which is the brand, the brand builder's responsibility. The brand builder has to build the experience, but you also have to narrate the change. So first is change the narrative, you're doing that. Second thing is narrate the change. And then the, 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 the how from a brand building perspective, and please uh, allow me to, to, to be the, the visible, you know, people say that you see only the tip of the iceberg. In my case, it, it's sort of the upside down thing. Anything that worked is the is the is the tip. The, what's underwater is all the pain that I paid to get that. Uh-huh. If I had a good CEO, would have been something. But okay, that's a separate story. It, it's and it's the truth. I'm I'm the iceberg of what you what what people think is success. Right. It's sitting on 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 a, a giant mountain of failure. Yeah. So let, let's be clear about that. Um, uh, that's great. I am a big believer. I'm a big believer in. Um, there, there are three roles in brand building. One is you, you have to create the story, then you have to publish the story, but the story has to be aimed at engagement because people, there's this two, there always was, there always has been too much story and there's been too little engagement. And so um, people get excited because, so I'll give you a very narrow example. This week, we, we got published in Newsweek in the United States, a story. Uh, an, an opinion piece written by a, 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 a friend of mine, Dr. Muhammad al-Nabari. Five times a day, uh, Islamic movement, he's, he's a Haredi Muslim guy. He's the mayor of Hora. Hora is one of the seven Bedouin cities here in the south. And, and he is a PhD in chemistry. He is a gaon. I love this man. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a rebbe to me in his own in, in his way. And uh, Dr. Nabari, I, I said, to him, you're, you're changing the narrative, but you're not narrating the change. And he said, I won't talk. In Israel, it's going to create Michigan. So we're fine. How about the United States? He says, who would want the story? I said, that's my problem. So we we got the story written in the United States. Now there's a story, an op-ed piece by Al-Nabari. His mother, she should live long. It, she can't she can't read it because it's in English. But okay, he had to put in Arabic so she could read it. But his mom was like, oi, what a nice story. <laughs> the problem is people stop there, Rabbi. They stop there with a the story. We wrote the story and we published it. And people say, ah, good. The problem is um, you get so locked in to, I wrote a story and I published a story. Doesn't everybody read the story? No, you actually have to, you have to, the story has to be written with engagement in mind. The, the measure of the story is not eyeballs. It's, it's sweat. To me, that's, this is brand building is, gets, is measured in sweat. Um, and it's not what they think. It's what they do. It's, 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 it's mamash, that's where it switches from intellectual learning to experience-based learning. And experience-based learning, you can't take it away from me, right? And so to me, it's dislocative. For, for 15 years, I brought powerful Jewish uh, leaders that weren't connected to Israel to Israel. But mamash, you take them by the hand, you put them on the plane, and you s- literally, from Sunday noontime until Thursday night when I put them on the bus, get the hell out of my country, I spend every waking minute with these guys on experience-based learnings. 
And so, yes, we learn Torah. Yes, we we hear speakers, but you, it, it's like you got to smell it, you got to feel it, you got to sweat it. In brand building terms, people forget that that the that the that the whole story is an emotional experience. Last one, and I'll shut up. Coach was a competitor of ours. Nasty guys. They were good. They're in New York. They were nasty. Uh, I knew the guy who was a CEO, and he said to me, "You know why we kill you at retail?" And I said. He said, because we studied it. And I said, okay, what do you got? And his story was this. He said, somebody comes into these beautiful coach stores and they pick up the nice handbag and they walk in, they lose a lot of money. They walk around, they pay for the handbag, and they hand the credit card, very nice, bring it up, give them the bag and they walk out. Failure. Why? Because they ask Procter & Gamble, right? Robert Brody, a lot of data. And the woman, it's usually a woman, says afterwards, you know, yeah, I feel good about that. So they thought, I want her not to feel good about it. I want to feel great about it. What do I have to do? And so they went to Japan and they saw how Japanese cash wrap works. And so never does the sales associate in Japan take your credit card and then hand it back to you. They walk around from behind the, the desk and they present it to you directly with the bag. Hmm. They create a physical intimacy. It, and that coach did that in their stores and their sales went up like 14%. Not 14% the first time, second sales, which is where all the profit is, right? The customer comes back because here they see me, feel me, and I haven't, ex I, they couldn't explain it, but I just felt different. It's an experience. What are we doing to create an experience of, of the show, of the Torah, of the warmth, of the strength? Of we, I'm telling you, the metric you, that, that brands should seek is, is, is a, a, a physical metric. It's sweat. If you can't smell them sweating on Zoom, we we gotta we gotta we gotta we gotta tighten the product up. Right. They, wow. We gotta see their hair on fire, and there's ways to do it. There really are, and you know how to do it. The the, the metric is they gotta sweat. That's it. That's not a consumer. That's a participant. And when it becomes their brand, that's we sold a lot of boots, and we created a big brand. But when we could have a conversation with people about belief, they started. To tell, they were co-creators. It was now their Torah. That's our that was that doubled our stock price. Mamash literally doubled our stock price when 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 belief became um, uh, an op, was accessible. People could act upon their belief. And so my question for for the, for the for the for the the Torah leaders of our of our generation is: What opportunities do we give to people to own the Torah? And I don't mean in an intellectual sense. I mean in an emotional sense. How do they how do they live their Torah? And when they live it. Uh, they'll drive you crazy in the very best possible way. One of the challenges of that is being a nonprofit is having having the resources and the personnel to create those experiences. It's a vicious cycle because if we give that emotional connection, we'll get the resources to then pay it forward to the next group. But it becomes this vicious cycle of of being able to create that in the nonprofit world as opposed to in the profit world. But still, the point is amazingly taking. Thank Amazing. you so much. That was brilliant. Amazing. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> is that um, is that in Timberland? I assume that's when you talked about uh, again you and spoke and read a lot of your articles. So much of what you did at Timberland was about social justice. It was about bettering the world. And I read an article where actually George Bush once made fun of you, or made fun of, picked on you in front of a context of many CEOs, where he said how you give your employees time off, paid time off to do, to go engage in community service because that's how much you believe in it. And what do you get for it? You get grief for it. So I guess that's your that's your that's your theory of putting it into action and making your employees not just buy into a, a concept, right. but actually encouraging them to live those principles as well. 
we were in the Roosevelt Room. Um, uh, it was right after 9-11, and uh, there were 19 CEOs. And you, the one thing you know about the White House is, in general, they can count. So when there's 19, you realize, you look around, and you realize, let's see, your revenues are less than their advertising budgets. So you're the 19th. You're so okay. That's me, 19. I'm the kid. I was at the big boys' table, but I had the, the little high chair, like my my little girl, and a bib. And then yeah, President Bush decided to single me out, which did not make me super popular with a guy who he cut off. Who had, uh, <laughs> a very famous dude who was like, hey, this is what we do. And he said, first of all, I'm not done speaking. And the other guy's like. Boy. <laughs> He, just, he, he said, you see this boy from New Hampshire? I thought, oh, my God. Okay. So after we finished, he says, he says, come on, I'll take you on a tour of the, of the Oval. And so everybody gets up. President of the United States says, get up. So you go in. I had been there with President Bush before. And so I stayed out of the way while he's doing the tour. And I was hanging out by the desk because that's kind of a cool thing to do. And, but it was, it was at a tough time. Uh, in Israel's uh, in Israel's existence, and I, I'm sitting there, and it was close on Purim, and I'm thinking, "What do you do? What do you do?" So the president came back, and so I decided, "I, I got this. I'm a sophisticated guy." So I lowered my voice. I said, "Mr. President," and he said, "Yep." Yeah. And but the problem is, like, what an idiot! Because it didn't matter. That I spoke I spoke softly, and he did too. All the other CEOs, like, they, they crowded around. That's not what I wanted. And I said, "I, I just want to." tell you uh, as a as a citizen proud patriot of america how much you appreciate your support for uh, uh israel and the jewish people and and he and <laughs> i love president bush slaps on the shoulder down and knocks you over and he says boy that's not hard to do and i said what do you mean he said it's easy to support israel i said no sir it is not easy to support he says first of all i'm the president i say it's easy i said okay <laughs> and he, and he said, i'll tell you why and i said yes sir and he said because uh israel is right about this that and the other thing and, I, and the other CEOs, I'm like, what is the, first of all, I was a little bit of a fly in the ointment in the other room. And now what is he doing talking about Israel? And so he says to me, again, it does the same thing. He says to this group, and I didn't put it in the article for good reason. He says, this group, he says, I can tell you one other thing about this boy. When he gets back to New Hampshire this afternoon, he's going to say a prayer for me because he prays three times a day. And he's <laughs> doing for me in his prayer. And I thought, okay, yep, yes, sure. That's great. I, I, <laughs> I walked out, you know, you walk. When you exit the oval on the left-hand side, there's this, it's a curved wall because it, it is the Secret Service dudes. And then you end up uh, in this, in the, in the waiting room, like for the, for the West Wing. It's this big room and I'm not making this up and maybe sound a little, uh, it sounded a little edgy, but the Saudi Arabian foreign minister was, was waiting there with his big entourage. And, 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 and I, I admit with humility and some embarrassment, um, I was so fired up by what the president said. I stopped for a second. He's a big physical guy. And I looked at him and I said, I got there first. And I walked away. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. That is not only great, that is a great place to leave wow. it, Mr. Swartz. We can't thank you enough for your time. The truth is, you've stimulated our thinking. I know our listeners Amazing. in representing Jewish communities, by the way, across the globe, we're so honored and grateful they listen. And I hope that you've stimulated everybody to think a little bit differently um, whether it's about recognizing the next Jeff Swartz that we, we know that they want Torah even if they don't uh, acknowledge that, whether it's challenging our own beliefs intergenerationally, how we connect and create continuity, whether it's re-examining our brand and, and what we do to create the emotional connection, or whether we undo, as you described, that awesome negative 
of, of the disconnect with, with Torah. You've challenged all of us. Uh, we could talk for hours. I hope this is only the beginning of a conversation that we can continue. But on behalf of all of us from the bottom of our hearts, I want to thank you for being with us. Thank you for all that you're doing. I know in the world of philanthropy, you continue to serve not only with your resources generously, but with your time, with your wisdom in so many ways. And, and thank you for all that you're doing. And thank you for who you are. Thank the you. privilege is mine, and thank you for this privilege. I, I deeply do. I, a bracha of, of Hatzlacha. You, you guys should be well and healthy and safe, you and your families, and continue to lead the Jewish people because we need you desperately. Amen. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. That was, that was fantastic. Really yeah. extraordinary. Getting warmed up. <laughs> Yeah, we could we could have that conversation for hours on end. The hour is getting late though, and we're not going back to the three and a half hour marathon. What 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 from that conversation really jumps out at you? What what will keep you awake tonight? What are you going to keep thinking about in the days and weeks to come? There was so much. I mean, obviously, the conversation about brand building and about creating an engagement with the people. That's not just about telling the story, but it's narrating the story. And it's about creating that engagement with people. I think for all of us, anyone in communal leadership, anyone who has a, any role of leadership, honestly, that is something that got my mind racing. But I will tell you, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, um, his description of tension that he felt resonated with me profoundly. And I think, you know, as modern Orthodox Jews, that is kind of our calling card. It's being okay living in that cloud. It's being okay living in that tension. When he was describing that, I found that very powerful. And and I got to be honest, I was getting a little choked up when he was talking about the first time he opened up a Gemara and put his hand on it. And not just the intellectual connection to Judaism, but the emotional connection to Judaism. That was unbelievable. Well, you basically wow. left nothing. You left nothing for us. But I agree with you. Each, <laughs> each one of those, each one of those. The Gemara one touched me because you think about, right, CEO, corporate America, crunching numbers, marketing, branding, strategy, intellect. And he basically is like, that stuff's all nice, but it was my heart. And and the way you just described it, when he talked about touching the Gemara, I hope that the all daf or the Dafyomi organizations will take that clip and to hear him talk about that he got the package of the Gemara in the mail, he opened it, he remembers where he was standing in the kitchen, he touched the daf and it like went through him. That was a, a visceral. But to, you know, to me, it's it's not even almost what he said, it's the way he said it, the passion. passion. He's on fire, he's passionate, he believes in it. It's It's amazing. I love how he was talking about how we've done such an incredible job of, of making Judaism so boring and uninteresting. It's like we've really worked hard at doing that. And, you know, why can't we just come up with some creative solutions and, and figure out a way to just re-engage and just, like he said, just be yourself. Take that passion that you have and, and show, show everyone how exciting Judaism really can be. He didn't, he didn't really unpack that fully because he was connecting it to the idea that we're so focused on risk management instead of embracing uncertainty, and that's the reason he thinks that we've made it so boring. And instead of worrying about the risk management of this world, embrace the uncertainty, and certainly if there's a part two, we can continue this conversation, right. what he means by that. What What is a Jewish, organized Jewish community, what do yeshiva school shuls look like when they're embracing uncertainty instead of managing risk? I would love no, to hear his thoughts on that. I would love to hear his thoughts on that also, but I, but I agree with him. You know, when you're a nonprofit, the room for failure is much less, right? In other words, if we, if we fail, so we're selling Torah, 
you, you, you can't, you, the, it's much more risk averse in that regard. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're a public traded company, so you, you put out a product, the product doesn't succeed, you Procter Gamble. So you research a product, you put it out, so it doesn't succeed. So your stock might drop a little bit, you might change over CEOs a little bit. But at the end of the day, you have something to fall back on. I find right. that perhaps what he was saying is that non for profits, especially shuls, have become so risk averse because they have that fear of failure. There isn't right. what to fall back on. You've spoken about that before, also, right? If if we were able, if we were given a little longer rope or leash, and, and we had a little bit more leeway, right, to play. I think you've both spoken about this in the past right. to experiment, to like throw a lot against the wall and see what sticks in programming, in in emotional connection, in the reach to the demographics and constituents we're trying to reach. Did one of you get a dog since we last had behind the bima? Is that is something barking back there? Okay, that's just definitely my, not me. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. In any case, we are we are over time and winding down, but I do want to make sure that, first of all, we thank Rafi Aguilar again, our new dear friend and soon-to-be community member, uh, where we'll teach him about sports and, and goats. Um, but also a special thank you to Jeremy Gelmar, BeeperMD.com, B-E-E-P-E-R-M-D.com, free at home PCR testing, and $30 rapids. But we said um, we, we would take a moment just to reflect on uh, Myers Leonard, who plays for the Miami Heat, currently suspended by the Miami Heat, um, used an anti-Semitic slur yesterday. He was playing a video game live stream. I never knew there was such a thing. What, what does that mean? People like pay or watch you play video games? That's a huge industry. Huge industry. Okay, that, that might Listen, be the most any, anyone scandalous that wants to, part of this. Anyone wants to pay me to play Miss Pac-Man? <laughs> I can get to like four yeah. number four. That, that could be the most scandalous part of the story. But anyway, that people pay to watch other people play video games. There's a, it seems to me to be like a lot wrong with that. But anyway, Myers Leonard was playing and he let loose an anti-Semitic slur. A um, couple interesting points to the story. Number one, I thought he did a great job of coming back right away and apologizing and, and an appropriate apology. He wrote, I'm deeply sorry for using an anti-Semitic slur, anti-Semitic slur during a live stream yesterday. While I didn't know what the word meant at the time, my ignorance about its history and how offensive it is to the Jewish community is absolutely not an excuse and I was just wrong. So notice he didn't equivocate. He didn't say, I'm sorry if you made you feel. He didn't put the onus on the victim. He said, it was wrong. It was offensive. It was wrong. I'm now more aware of its meaning and I'm committed to properly seeking out people who can help educate me about this type of hate and how we can fight it, right? It was wrong. I'm going to educate myself. Kharata, Kabbalah, Asad, all of the ingredients of, and I'm not on his payroll, I don't get anything from him, but I thought that this was a really well-crafted apology. I acknowledge my own mistake, and there's no running from something like this. It is so hurtful to someone else. It's not proper representation of who I am. I want to apologize to the Arisons. Mickey Arison is the owner of the Heat, a Jewish person. My teammates, coaches, front office, and everyone associated with Miami Heat, my family, loyal fans, members of the Jewish community who I've hurt, I promise to do better and know that my future actions will be more powerful than my use of this word. And I, like I say, I was really impressed by it. I thought he did a, a good job of it. Doesn't excuse it. Doesn't let it off the hook. We have to hold him accountable that he's in fact going to educate himself and become an advocate of being more sensitive and careful with language. But if you contrast that to Saturday Night Live and the actor who you made the deeply offensive anti-Israel, anti-Semitic joke about uh, Israel only vaccinating Jews where, you know, a certain prominent rabbi wrote an article basically saying, what are you calling for canceling and what are you calling for him to be fired? Educate him, take him out, spend time with him. I couldn't disagree more vehemently because I think that, you know, in Meyer's case, he says, I was wrong, period. I made a mistake. I offended. I hurt. I want to learn. Now it's our job not to beat him up further, but to educate 
and to embrace and to turn him around to become a big spokesperson and a loyal advocate for Israel, for the Jewish people. In the case of the person who never apologizes, never owns up, never takes responsibility, I think that is altogether very, very different. A great footnote to the story Rabbi Moskowitz loves is that New England Patriot wide receiver Julian Edelman, who in the last year has become a really outspoken, proud Jew. Talk about using your platform to... Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love the post that he wrote where at the end he basically says, you know, look, I, I don't think you meant to hurt. And I'm not gonna, you know, throw it in your face or beat you up. But why don't you come down? I come down to Miami a lot, and why don't we do Shabbat dinner? So um, I'm just you know, saying, if the two of them have Shabbat dinner and they need a rabbi there, I volunteer myself. I'll be a fly on the wall when they want me to be a fly on the wall, and I'll interject myself when it's appropriate. But I, I'd be happy I, to I share actually, Shabbat uh, dinner with. I actually extended that invitation earlier today, but you can stop by for dessert over Moscow. That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> they, they already said it. they they want a real football guy, so they called me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but I'll tell you the exactly. best part in my house was that, you know, obviously my son is a very big sports fan. And first of all, he didn't even know what the term meant. But after the conversation, um, it was a great conversation about how what you put on the internet and the words that you say have a lot of meaning and carry a lot of weight. And it was a great conversation for us around the dinner table tonight about being cautious about what footprint we create in social media when we're out there, when we're with friends, when we're in school, the words that we use, we've referenced in the past that words can be bullets or words can be seeds. And you really have to be careful with the way you were. So I want to thank him for giving me that platform to have that discussion with my children. Yeah, that's an interesting spin on it. So, you know, again, I'm not, we're not letting him off the hook, but I do think it is an example in our time. (laughs) What were you laughing at? You're like, yeah, that was good. Anyways. <laughs> no, no, I think I think I think that's a great perspective, an interesting spin. I'm really tired. I'm looking to wind down. Uh, not gonna lie, still have a lot to do. Um Shabbos Russia. Shabbos Gadol, Pesach's coming, selling chametz, right. answering Shilas. Got a newsletter, global campaign newsletter featuring a video from Rabbi Moskowitz. It's not too late to join BRSonline.org slash global. You can still join the global community for as little as a dollar. Just be part of the community. You'll get a special email, special newsletter, special video to the global community members every week. Not too late. Go on right now and put us over. Where are we at? Who knows? There's got to be a Shrier somewhere listening. <laughs> In any case, so we'll, we'll look to see his continued learning. And, and that's our responsibility is to turn him around, not to assume the worst. I thought he owned up. I thought he wrote a great apology. Probably had some help in doing it. And... Um, Hopefully, we'll see good things come out of that. So, Jeff Swartz, go back, listen again. There's a lot to unpack, Amazing. a lot to think about. Really, I feel really like special we have a person. Staff meeting after what he said, just to unpack it all and to discuss ways to make that, you know, bring it to fruition and really concretize it within our own show. He he is a gift to the Jewish people, and and there have to be more like him. But imagine if we took a guy like him. We said, you have a branding expertise. You built a multi-billion-dollar international brand. Now right. talk to us about our brand called Torah, Judaism, and so on. Instead of thinking we have all the answers, why don't we go to the people who really are the experts in this and, and embrace them, ask them to partner with us and guide us because in this informal conversation, it really, it really woke us all up. So, First of all, exciting. if the president could have in the West Wing 19 CEOs, so we should have at BRS, I'm inviting 19 CEOs and multinational corporations to come to Boca Raton Synagogue. They could have Friday night dinner with Julian Edelman and Rabbi Goldberg first, and then they could come to BRS for a conversation about how to market Judaism better. In. I love it. I love it. In any case, stay tuned for next week. It's only going to get bigger and better. We've got an incredible guest. 
Next week is going to be very, very special. So uh, it's been fun, boys. Good to see you as always. Till next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy. Stay holy. Thank you for listening to Behind the Bima. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for another peek behind the Bima.